I didn't plan this connection with VBS, the whole Everest expedition thing, but it seemed to work out well today. But it was back in 1953 that Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa, uh, Tenzing Norgay, made it to the summit of Mount Everest, the first people, as far as we know, to ever make it to the top. And after this momentous conquest, Hillary would wax poetically about the, what he called, indescribable beauty of the mountain. He said that the great peaks were, quote, glowing like balls of fire against the background of a dark velvet sky. A decade later, the summit was reached by an American named Jim Whitaker, and he also spoke of the beauty. These were his words. When you come off the mountain, you see the first blade of grass. Then go lower and see a flower. You feel so humble and grateful to be alive. We're so lucky to be able to share the magic of this planet, and you realize that when you come off Everest. So early climbers were enchanted by the magnificent beauty of this peak. Today, it's becoming a little bit of a different story. Um, the mountain has since then been soiled by greed and ambition and pollution. Um, and here's some information from a recent article in the National Geographic. Um, unlike in 1963, when only six people had made it to the summit, in the spring of 2012, more than 500 mobbed the summit, many without basic climbing skills. Having paid somewhere between $30,000, this is a photo from uh, one of the campsites in Mount Everest today, having paid between $30,000 and $120,000 to be on the mountain, too many naively expect to make the summit. Um, the two standard routes are not only dangerously crowded, but also disgustingly polluted, with garbage leaking out of the glaciers and pyramids of human excrement befouling the high camps. One veteran climber said, quote, Along with that rush of visitors has come a new breed of parasitic and predatory adventurer. It's gotten so bad that some expeditions hire Sherpas just to guard their stuff at the different campsites against burglars. And the trash keeps piling up as the expedition teams leave behind a string of garbage from the bottom of the mountain all the way up to the summit. And although there have been some attempts to do a massive cleanup there, because of the frigid temperatures, what is there pretty much stays there or gets frozen into the surface there on Everest. I think there's a much more beautiful image uh, in the beginning pages of Scripture. A beautiful, pristine, unpolluted image of God's greatest creation. Us. Because we carry the image of God in us. We are image bearers of God. God made you, God made us, and God does not mess up. God doesn't make mistakes. What He made was good. 
What he made was indescribably beautiful. What he made was pure, pristine. And not only did he give us this gift of bearing his image, but he gave us incredible freedom that goes with that. And since the fall of mankind in the garden, just a couple of chapters into our story, the powerful, breathtaking image of God has been polluted and been soiled. Adam and Eve chose to believe a lie from the enemy. They, instead of trusting in the love of God, they believed the lie, and they decided in a sort of hostile takeover to become like God themselves, taking His place. And in a world full of billions of options, a world brimming with freedom and choices, they chose to disobey the one instruction God gave them. He said, don't touch this tree. Don't eat from this tree. They did. And the consequences have been profound not only for them, but for all of us who would follow. Their relationship with God was diminished. Their relationship with each other, hostile. Their lives, less than they could have and should have been. And over the centuries, each of us have followed in the way of Adam and Eve. Each of us have followed in the way of rebellion, of sin. Each of us has soiled. Each of us has stained the magnificent imprint of God within us. And so on our own merits, we are all sinners. We all stand guilty before God. We, human beings, all of us, we are sin addicts. And so we have trashed the most beautiful work of the Master Creator. Ever think about why it's so hard to control what you say? Why is it so hard for you to get a handle on what comes out of your mouth? Um, ever wonder why you lose your temper so often and so freely? Ever wonder why when you see someone else's stuff, you feel envious of that? Ever consider why it's so hard to stop gossiping or why you're drawn to porn? Did you ever wonder why it is that you cannot cope with life unless you use pills? Why you're compulsively drawn to alcohol? Or why is it that the guy at work who seems to have everything, the beautiful wife, the terrific family, why he threw it all away for an affair? Have you ever wondered why that successful business person you knew, why she who by all appearances was, was at the apex of her profession, why she traded it in to pull a crooked deal just to get a little bit more why does the celebrity that has the looks and the fame and the money, why do they put everything at risk because of their addiction to drugs? Ever wonder how that guy who is a deacon in his church and a leader in the community, how could he be a child molester? What happened to the creation? What happened to the imprint of God in us? Why do we lie? 
Why are we so selfish, so petty? Why do we get angry over the smallest thing? Have you ever stopped to wonder why it is that we are so messed up? Well, since the Garden of Eden, the enemy has been launching an all-out assault on God's greatest creation. Satan can't touch God. He knows it. Satan cannot defeat God. He knows it. But us, he can wreck us. He can trash our lives. He can tarnish the ones who bear the image of God. He can tarnish that creation, that singular creation of God with which he longs to have a deep, deep relationship. Us. The good news is this. The cycle of degradation and diminishment was upended by Jesus was turned upside down by God in the flesh, Jesus, who took our sins upon Himself to set us free, to reboot us into becoming the people God always intended for us to be. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. I love these words. He says, For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Why don't you read that with me? Let's read this one out loud, if you would. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Amen! That is good news. The greatest problem, and I'm not saying these are not problems. I'm not saying these are not issues, but your greatest problem today, it's not financial. Your greatest challenge today is not a diagnosis you got from a doctor or is not a chronic health issue that you deal with. It's not the rebellious teenager who lives under your roof. Your greatest problem is not your job situation. The greatest problem that you face, that I face, that we face, is the problem of sin. But the good news what the gospel is the good news is that God is greater than your sin the son of God has taken your sin upon himself to forgive you to set you free and to release that full potential in you a man or woman made in the image of God and so we're going to walk through a passage today first John wonderful wonderful passage, 1 John chapter 1, into, bleeding into a little bit of chapter 2, where John basically gives us some straight talk about our sin problem, about how we tend to make it worse, and how God can make it all right. Let's start in verse 3. John says, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. 
we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. So through Jesus, John says, the original plan of God was fellowship, joyful fellowship. Fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. We are at our very best when we are friends of God, not foes of God. Amen? We are at our very best when we are in love with God and in love with the people that He made in His image. So this is the plan. On your outline this morning, write that down. The plan. The plan is joyful fellowship with God and His people. This was His idea from day one. There in the garden, joyful fellowship with Him and joyful fellowship amongst ourselves. But as we've already mentioned, this picturesque, breathtaking plan of God was trashed by us. The fellowship was wrecked. Verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay? So the plan, joyful fellowship with God, joyful fellowship with each other. The problem is this. Essentially, it's very basic. It is that God is holy. We are not holy. God is righteous. We are not. God is pure. We are not. Okay? That's the problem. And the text we read uses that imagery of light. And, and dark. God is light in him. No darkness. Us, we're bumping around in the darkness, John says. We are in spiritual darkness. And so there is this massive chasm between God, holy, pure, righteous, and us. And it is a chasm not of his making, all right? We need to be really clear on that. God is not the one who walked away from us in the garden. God is not the one who turned his back on us. We're the ones who have rebelled against God. We're the ones who have built this wall of sin with bricks and mortar of our iniquity separating us from God. That's what we did. Now, there are not really degrees of holiness. Okay, it's not like you can be kind of holy, you know, sort of holy. You're either holy or you're unholy. God is holy. It's not something that you grade on the curve, right? But to kind of help us understand the chasm that we have constructed, all right? Let's, let's, let's do imagine it as a sort of line of holiness, all right? Uh, where you've got on one end of this line of the spectrum, Jesus Christ, sinless, okay? Tempted in every way, just as you and I are, Hebrews 4.15, tempted just like, but never sinned. So on one end of the spectrum, you have Jesus, completely holy, completely righteous. And then you imagine humanity somewhere along this line, you know, various places on the spectrum, way, way, way far away from Jesus. You've got, you know, the mass murderers and the molesters and the serial killers and the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddam Husseins and all these people. And here's the thing. 
I would like to imagine that on this line, in this spectrum, Jesus and I are down here at this end, and all those evil, wicked people are down at that other end, but the truth is, I am miles from Jesus and inches from Hitler. Because Jesus is holy. Hitler and I, we're in the same boat, man. We're not holy. Okay? Um, so we got a problem. We've created this gulf of distance between us and God instead of fellowship. There's distance. And consequently, our sins have distanced us from each other. Even people in our own family, even our friends were distanced by sin. So the plan of fellowship with God and each other has been wrecked by our sin, okay? But here's the thing. That's bad, right? (laughs) But there is something that a lot of people do that actually makes this problem a whole lot worse. Verse 8. If we claim that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins, if we're honest, we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. And we're showing that His Word has no place in our hearts. So the problem, the greatest problem that any of us will ever face, and the one that every single one of us does face, in fact is the problem of sin. And the absolute worst thing that you can do when you have this problem is, according to John, to pretend. Me? A sinner? Come on, man. I made a few mistakes. I'm not really a... I mean, those guys are sinners. You know, those people you listed from history or, the, or this guy I know on the other side of the street just got arrested for this or that, the other thing. They're sinners, right? I'm not a sinner. Come on. John says that is the worst possible thing you can do as a sinner is to pretend you're not. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like being in, being in debt financially would be bad, like huge piles of debt. That would be bad. That's a problem, okay? Worse than that is being in piles of debt and imagining that you're not. You just keep right on buying and spending, and now everything's fine. And the worst thing you can do as a sinner is to pretend that you are not a sinner. John says you're just fooling yourself. You're lying to yourself, deceiving yourself. Worse than that, you're calling God a liar. Why? Because he says you're a sinner. And you're like, no, I'm not. Not only does he say you're a sinner, but God sent his son, Jesus. He sent his flesh and blood. He he became incarnate and lived this perfect life and died on a cross for you because of your sins. And you're like, I don't have sin. I don't have a sin problem. So John says you're deceiving yourself. You're calling God a liar when you pretend. And there's no place There's no foothold in your life for the Word of God, 
for the truth. So pretending makes things worse. Now, we can pretend even as a society, right? We can pretend as a culture, you know, what people used to say was a sin, that's not a sin anymore. Or you can go all the way and say, you know, they used to say that was like sinful, but actually that's a good thing. We need to give somebody an award for that. An ESPY maybe, right? The Courage Award to Caitlyn Jenner. Yes, yes, that's what we want people to do and be like. We want them to take God's creation and say, nah, I'm going to redo it my own way. I'll decide what's right for me. And we applaud that. Now, before we get ourselves all worked up about the state of things here in America, one of the things I really appreciate about John here is John does not let us do that. He keeps bringing us back to our own sin problem because it is way too easy to think about someone else's sins, to label them as a sinner, to criticize society's sins, and that can become, in fact, a subtle way of pretending, can't it? Because when I am constantly thinking about and pointing at, and I can't believe how bad that is, what I saw on the internet or what I saw on TMZ the other night or wherever, when I'm constantly doing that, then I am minimizing my own sin. I'm feeling better about myself by constantly calling attention to somebody else's failure. And that's a way of pretending, of lying to myself as well. John says, don't play games. You only fool yourself, call God a liar, and give no place for the word of truth in your life. Now, I don't know who wrote this poem, but I really like this poem. It's about a fellow showing up in heaven. It goes like this. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, by the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus and asked, What's the deal? I would love to hear your take on how all these sinners get up here. God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, said he. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd see you. (laughs) I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've polluted the image of God. And I don't need to pretend or point fingers. I need to look in the mirror and deal with my own issues, right? 
Um, so John wants us to own up to our sin, our individual failure. He wants us to drop all the comparisons and the pretense. And now into chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ. Remember the line, the spectrum here? He is the only one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So this is the pardon that John talks about here. My sin problem, the atonement, my sin problem has been washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What I did in the past washed away. As I struggle to be a disciple and I fail from time to time, I have an advocate cleansing me, washing my sins away right now. And because, as John says, there is only one who is truly righteous, then there is only one way to get out of the hole that I have dug for myself. Jesus. No plan B. No other option that we can manufacture to somehow pull ourselves out of this hole on our own instead of turning somewhere else or imagining I'm not actually in a hole, John says, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Four times in the passage, the name of Jesus. John keeps bringing us back to Jesus. That's the straight talk on sin. I'm a sinner and my only hope is Jesus Christ. So instead of pretending, instead of fooling yourself, imagining that you don't have a sin problem or trying to find some other way other than Jesus to deal with it, Simply trust in Jesus. We're going to watch a short video that makes this point. A man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole, and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind, and when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither, in fact, did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. He instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength. And in the hole he remained. 
another man appeared. There was something different about him. He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. This man lowered himself into the earth, into the pit. He took hold of the man and dragged him into the light. And the man in the hole, who could not get himself out, was saved. So, Jesus came into our world. Jesus alone has dealt with our greatest problem. Now what? Verse 3. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know that we are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. The project. Write this one down. The project. Now, moved by love for my Savior, I follow Jesus in grateful obedience. The forgiveness that we have in Christ is about restoring us to that joyful relationship with God that we were always meant to have. And we show, we demonstrate our gratefulness, we demonstrate our love for God, our gratitude and everything when we obey His will for our lives, when we say yes to the mission of God in our lives. We, the redeemed we, the people who have been forgiven, we choose to live as Jesus lived. We choose to love God and love other people. That's the way Jesus lived. And God's grace is for you. The pardon and the project that are available in Jesus Christ, those are for you. No matter how much garbage you have piled up in your life, past or present, you are not beyond the reach of His grace. Now, it's hard to imagine for me anyone who blew it quite as completely as Peter did in the New Testament. Think about Peter for a second. Jesus chose... Twelve individuals handpicked, Peter was one of them, to know him the best, to receive personal instruction from him, to be his friends, his ministry partners during his ministry on earth. Peter, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter is going to look Jesus right in the eyes and say, I will never let you down. Everybody else, Jesus, may fall away, but not me. I'm totally yours. 
You can count on me no matter what, Jesus. That same night, there is this earthquake of events unfolding with blinding speed. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is put on this sham trial at the house of Caiaphas. And in the chaos, just hours after declaring his unwavering devotion to Jesus, his Messiah and his friend, Peter denies, denies, and denies again Jesus. What betrayal. Denying ever having been a disciple of Jesus. You talk about a spiritual breakdown. It's hard to imagine a failure more complete than that. Peter's betrayal of Jesus is more than a one-time failure. It is a total collapse. Total collapse. Think about it. Really. Everything Peter has built his life on for the last several years with Jesus, everything he has loved, everything he has committed himself to, everything about the future that he has imagined, everything that he has pledged himself to be, renounces. In a matter of hours, he goes from proclaiming absolute devotion to Jesus to saying, I don't even know this guy. I don't know what this is about. I don't even know what's going on here. I'm not a disciple of Jesus. Now check it out. I tell you his story because did Peter, did Peter put himself outside of the reach of God's grace? Did Peter go too far? Did he, did he step beyond the Lord's capacity to forgive? Of course not. Of course not. We know that. In fact, the last chapter of John, we won't read the chapter, but a little abridged version of it. It's a beautiful story of redemption, of Jesus initiating a process of forgiveness and relaunching Peter into ministry. You see, after Jesus' death, Peter goes right back to his old life. The master's dead. The master's gone. Goes back up to Galilee, pushes out in his boat, starts fishing again, not catching anything. Um, sees a guy on the shore yelling at him. Miraculous catch of fish. Jesus recognizes that's not just some guy that... That's the resurrected Jesus. Strips off his outer garment, jumps in the sea, swims to shore. There's Jesus fixing a little breakfast for the guys. As excited as Peter is, I, I've got to imagine it wasn't easy for him to look in Jesus' eyes. And so the Lord just says, hey, Peter, it's me. Do you love me? Yeah. Do you love me? Three times. Yeah, you know I love you. And not only does Jesus forgive Peter, but he relaunches him into the project of God. Feed my sheep, Peter. Get involved in my ministry. 
You know what you've been called to do. Get back to it. This morning, do you need to accept the forgiveness of God? You can confess the name of Christ. You can be baptized into what He accomplished for you on the cross. You can do that today. And begin this new life in fellowship with God, in fellowship with His people. Know this, no matter what you have done, God is greater than your sin. Jesus is stronger. So will you confess His name? Will you be baptized into Christ? Maybe this morning you just need to get together with someone, huddle up with someone as we sing here in a minute, and just pray about something that's on your heart. However, you need to respond. Stand and respond to God as we worship.